Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 18. Carter sat stoically as he looked out of the window of the private plane. The trip had taken 16 straight hours, and Carter hoped it would be worth their while. He looked over to Anari. She was sleeping, which was a compliment to his character, because she didn't trust anyone enough to close her eyes around them. Word. For real. Trust had been established between them. Carter admired her beauty. Her light skin and brown hair that had been highlighted blonde and was cut short fit her perfectly. Faces like hers didn't usually run empires, and Carter would be lying if he said he hadn't underestimated her. She was a natural-born hustler, and Carter knew that if she had brought them all this far, it was for good reason. The flight concierge came by and nudged Inari out of her rest. I'm sorry to wake you, but the captain would like to begin his initial descent. Could you please buckle up? the woman asked. Inari nodded and cleared her throat as she fingered her short pixie cut before putting on a seatbelt. How long was I out? she asked. A few hours, Carter replied. I'm anxious to hear what your people here have to say. There's a round table. Is it the round table of bosses? Is it the Illuminati? Because I was just about to start making fun of y'all motherfuckers for only having these niggas in there for like three chapters and then never really talking about them and disbanding them immediately. So I'm guessing it's the round table of bosses. Holla. You know, Illuminati. Illuminati. Sorry. The same families have dominated the DR for decades. We'll meet them all informally tonight at the pits, Inari informed. Tomorrow, we'll begin business. Oh, great. So Carter's going to see Estes while also seeing CJ fighting in the pits. And then him and Estes are going to have a problem. And yeah. It's quite brutal, Inari responded. But it's a tradition here. Men put boys in a gladiator's battle and let them fight. No rules, no holds barred, just survival of the fittest. What type of shit is that? Carter asked with a frown. They fight people like dogs? Yeah, the right man gets the right fighter and he can make a lot of money. We aren't talking friendly wagers. I'm talking about quarter million dollar fights. They train these kids like professionals, Nari said. That's fucked up, Carter said, and that's just going to show that it's going to go down. Also, I agree with Carter. 
It's the way to land, Inari responded with a shrug. The plane hit the tarmac with an unexpected ease, and Carter looked out of his window. He wanted to make sure that their entry into this country was undetected. The last thing he needed was for anyone to determine his whereabouts. He had taken great precautions to live out of the scope of the Fed's radar, and he wanted to keep it that way. Relax. I don't move sloppy. It's a private airstrip, Anari said, easing some of the tension in his chest. So is it a clear port? I'm getting too old for this shit, he said with a laugh as he shook his head. The amount of anxiety and turmoil he felt in his heart kept him up at night. Being away from his family was weighing on him, but the only way to get to them and make things right was to go through Anari. He had to play things her way if he wanted to free his wife and find his son. Anari chuckled softly as she made her way to the exit. A bulletproof, black-on-black truck waited for them at the end of a red carpet. Carter looked around, his neck on a swivel, as he entered the vehicle. The dirt roads kicked up dust as they drove through the city streets. Barefoot children ran after the car excitedly, waving and laughing as they sped by. Such a beautiful country with such poverty, Anari said more to herself than anyone else. Pull over, Carter stated. Senor? The driver frowned as if he hadn't heard him right. Right up here. Pull over, Carter instructed. We don't have time. We'll make time, Carter said sternly. He got out of the car, the warm humidity causing sweat to form instantly on his forehead. He removed his suit jacket and tossed it inside as he watched the kids catch up to him. He pulled a wad of money out of his pocket, and the children cheered as he began passing out $100 bills. You would have thought they were meeting Santa Claus himself the way they jumped for joy. The beautiful face of these kids touched him as he thought of his own son. He'll want someone to do the same if, God forbid, his son ever needed it. The more bills he passed out, the more kids accumulated, and Carter gave freely until he was out of money to give. He was swarmed with hugs, and Carter could barely walk as he made his way back to the car. They clung to him as if he had saved their lives. He waved goodbye and retreated to the air-conditioned temperatures of the truck. You can't save them all, Inari said. No, but those few won't go hungry tonight, he answered. Inari nodded, and a rare smile graced her face as the driver slowly rolled away. Carter was a man of character, and he believed there was no point in getting money if you weren't going to give a little of it back. He had done enough wrongdoings in his attempt to acquire wealth that he had to balance it out somehow. It was what made him sleep easy at night. Lately, that had been a lost privilege anyway. With his son's whereabouts unknown and the love of his life behind bars, rest hadn't come easy, and the bags under his eyes showed it. Carter had never wanted to retire from the game as much as he did now. He remembered a time when we fell in love. Sorry. Do you remember, girl? On the block, me and you, serving crack, till done, till three, but what about crack, girl? Heroin, and meth, and crack, and speed, and dope, we weren't selling weed. Sorry. You and me, in Miami, what about, what about, brat, dot, 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 brat, I had to finish it off. I had to do the brat dot dot dot. I, I couldn't not do that one. Do you? Do, sorry. <clears throat> he remembered a time when he had hung on to his throne with no thought of ever coming off it. But now he craved normalcy. 
He used to clown the average Joe with the average job. He had never understood the mentality of working a 9 to 5, but now he envied the man who lived that simple life. Living check to check meant a man didn't have to live bullet to bullet. It may not have been a grand life, but it wasn't a dangerous one either. Joe ain't never had to watch his wife take a bid, Carter thought. His reverie was interrupted when he noticed they were pulling into the Gatesman Old Factory. Expensive cars lined the sides of the road as men in suits made their way inside. Carter and Inari exited the vehicle. Matias will meet us at the entrance inside, Inari said. Leave your pistol. There are no guns allowed inside. I bring my gun everywhere, Carter insisted. We're on their territory. Your one gun won't do much against a hundred men that'll be inside. Just trust me. I wouldn't lead you into the darkness, Inari pushed. Carter reluctantly left his weapon and then made his way inside. Inari, welcome beautiful lady. She was greeted warmly as soon as she stepped foot in the building. Matias, Inari beamed. Thank you for having us. This is my associate, Carter. Carter nodded in acknowledgement. First we play, and tomorrow we talk business. I've got the best seat in the house for you. Will you be placing wagers this evening? Matias said. No, we're just here to observe, Carter answered sternly. Carter and Inari would have been seated ringside, if a ring existed at all. They were front and center as they watched the crowd slowly filter in. It was like a real sport, and Carter couldn't believe that these people had the stomach for this. He was all for professional boxing, and could even deal with the MMA stuff. When he saw a young boy walk out into the ring, it instantly enraged him. This shit ain't sport, Carter thought. He felt Inari place a calming hand on his forehead, and he took a deep breath. I mean, but they gotta start somewhere when they're boxing, right? Like, I've seen a lot of videos of kids doing a lot of awesome stuff as kids in the realm of boxing, so. Their house, their rules. She leaned into him and said, Remember the bigger picture. We can't save them all. Carter's jaw was tense as he watched the crowd react to the vicious fight between youths. Grown men hooted and hollered around him. It was savagery in its rawest form. Carter stood to his feet when his eyes fell on the next fighter. CJ? He thought. His mind was playing tricks on him and he squeezed his eyes closed and opened them, hoping that the picture before him would be different. That's not my son. That can't be my son. He's in the States, back home, somewhere in foster care. Suddenly, the idea of him being in the system seemed so much more comforting than this reality. A mixture of anger and pride filled him as CJ moved around the pit with skilled athleticism, taking no prisoners as he delivered blow after devastating blow. He was taller than Carter remembered. The years had crept by, and at almost 13, he was coming into his mannish looks, and clearly, he had been conditioned for this fight. He's 11, isn't he? If he was 8. Okay, I could see him um, being almost 9 when he got there. So, okay. We could say 12 and then that's almost 13. So, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But y'all didn't say that shit. CJ, Carter shouted. His voice caused a momentary lapse in focus as they locked in on one another. A flicker of recognition reflected in CJ's eyes and his opponent didn't waste the opportunity to send a crashing jab to CJ's jaw. It staggered him, and before he could recover, he was hit again with an uppercut that rocked him. Carter was on the floor in an instant, but Inari pulled him back. You, this is your fault, nigga. You better stand back and watch. Let him finish. He's been trained for this, Inari said. 
That's my son out there, Carter protested, livid as pure rage coursed through his veins. And he was winning before you distracted him, Anari commented. Carter shrugged her off and rushed over to the fight, pulling the boy off his son and flinging him across the pit. What the fuck? The crowd erupted in protest and Carter pulled CJ to his feet. Get off me, CJ shouted. I'm the best fighter here. I got this. I don't need your help. Carter was taken aback as CJ snatched his arm away from him. Boo! The crowd antagonized as Carter looked on in utter confusion. How are you here? Who the fuck got you into this shit? Carter had so many questions. He had sent people to the Dominican Republic in search of his son, and they had come back short of information. How had he missed this? When Estes stepped into the pit, suddenly it all made sense. Carter met Estes halfway across the circular arena, and before Estes could speak one word, Carter leveled him with one blow. The old man was no match for Carter, not where hands were concerned. Carter pulled his backup piece. He had warned Inari that he never went anywhere without being armed. He may have left one gun in the car, but the one holstered on his ankle was readily accessible. He pointed it on Estes. Within seconds, another gun was pointed at the back of his head. This was Estes' house, Estes' territory. Carter had let his temper get the best of him, but when it came to his son, there was no limits. Uh-uh-uh, I wouldn't do it. Anari came out of nowhere with their own small caliber pistol aimed at the man who was threatening Carter. The entire arena was silent as everyone tried to guess how this would pan out. Carter, be smart, Estes said as he rolled over on his side to spit blood from his mouth. You shoot me and then what? CJ witnesses his father gunned down and then fed to the pigs. No harm has come to him in my care. This is just a hobby. Carter pulled back the hammer on his gun. You've been hiding my son from me? For what? So he could represent you in this fight? You breeding my boy like he's a slave? Putting him to work for you? Training him like an animal? Tell me why I shouldn't blow your top, old man. Because I'm feeling real trigger happy right now. The threat was real. The tone of his voice said it all. Estes would die tonight if Carter had anything to say about it. Stop! CJ yelled. Enraged, he stormed over to help Estes off the ground. Nobody forced me to do nothing. I want to fight. I'm the best. And you come in here and mess up everything we work for. I didn't ask you to show up here. Just go back to where you came from because I don't need you anymore. You're too late. I've been waiting for you to come back for years and now you want to come in like I need saving? I like it here and I'm not going with you. This is my home now. I'm a man and I can take care of myself. Mmm. Hmm. I mean, I, I was asking, like, this nigga ain't been looking for a son for three years? When they said three years later, I did ask that question. But still, ain't this a little bit convenient? Mm. Estes motioned for his goon to lower his weapon, and Inari slowly lowered hers as well. Carter stormed after CJ. The amount of resentment he heard from his son was wounding. CJ, Carter shouted. He grabbed him by the elbow and turned him around. Don't turn your back on me. I'm your... Before he could finish his sentence, his chest throbbed with excruciation. It felt like someone was squeezing his heart, trying to stop it from beating, and Carter's face twisted in agony. Spittle flew from his mouth as he pursed his lips and blew out a sharp breath as he gripped the left side of his pectoral. Carter? He heard Inari's voice. Dad? CJ called out, his tone going from anger to worry as Carter fell forward into his son's arms. 
The weight of Carter sent them both to the ground, and CJ held his father, leaning Carter's back against his chest as Carter gasped for air. His eyes were wide in desperation. He just couldn't get enough air in. Breathe, he told himself. Fucking breathe. It's tearing up my heart when I'm with you. And when we are apart, you feel it too. And I flew to the Dominican Republic to see you. But I'm gonna die. I thought he had got shot in the lung. Like, not the heart. I thought he got shot in the lung. And I mean, it could have all been taken care of way back then if these niggas trusted doctors even a little bit. So, I mean, you brought this on yourself, my nigga. Like, seriously. A slow burn spread through the entire front of his body, and Carter kicked his feet as he attempted to stand. He never left the ground. He just kept scooting CJ back, farther and farther. Somebody help me. Dad? Dad? CJ was crying. Carter could hear his son wailing in his ears, and for the first time in his life, Carter was afraid. He gripped his son's hand as he tried to concentrate on the beat of CJ's racing heart. Thump. 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 He could feel CJ's heartbeat as he leaned against his son. The rapid pace matched the panic and commotion around him, but it didn't match his own heart that was slowing down by the second. With each beat, agony struck like lightning, and he knew his beats were numbered. Just breathe, Carter, Anari said as she knelt in front of him. He knew he was in trouble from the look in her eyes. The woman who let nothing rattle her feared what was happening. I'm dying, he thought. The intense pain never let up, and he gripped CJ's hand, wanting his son to be the last person he felt before he took his last breath. He closed his eyes and saw Mia Moore's beauty behind his lids. It made him want to keep them close forever. Dad, open your eyes. Keep your eyes open. Help is coming. It was CJ's cries that forced him to pop his lids back open, but it was so hard. Fighting this feeling, resisting this transition was impossible. He squinted his eyes in panic when he saw his brother, Mecca, standing across the pit. He just stood there, still, among the crowd, and Carter blinked away the image. Carter couldn't keep fighting for much longer, and when his grip around CJ's hand went limp, CJ knew that his father was gone. Seriously? Seriously? This is how you're killing Carter. This is how... This is how you do it. Really? Like, this nigga's been through so much and you have him have a heart attack the first time he lays eyes on his son again? Word? This is what we're doing? Okay. Oh, man. No. CJ cried, not caring who witnessed his weakness. Anari put both hands over her mouth in shock as she knelt and touched Carter's neck. There was no pulse. There was no, well, there was nothing. Carter was gone. CJ looked up at her with hope in a stare, but she shook her head, letting him know that his father was no more. CJ hugged Carter so tightly that it brought tears to Anari's eyes. Finally, the ambulance arrived, but it was too little, too late. Unless they were raising the dead, they couldn't help. Carter had passed, and if her eyes hadn't deceived her, Anari was sure that he had felt every torturous second of it. Estes and Anari looked down at CJ in sympathy. Come on, kid. Let's allow the people to do their jobs, Estes said. CJ stood, reluctantly releasing his father. His rage boiled over as he kicked at the dirt and flipped over the rectangular table where men placed their bets. He just wanted to hurt someone. Anyone would do, even if it was himself. 
He sat in one of the chairs and brought his elbows to his knees as his hands rested on top of his head. I don't know what to do, he thought. He had never thought he would lose his father at such a young age. But now that he had, CJ was devastated. Estes could see the steam rolling off CJ. More and more, Estes was understanding CJ. Every pain in his life was transformed into aggression. Anger and hurt went together like beans and rice in his mind. CJ wouldn't heal from this. No one had taught him how to take the hard stuff so it wouldn't fester and turn into a bigger problem later. This would be another source of rage for him. It'll be what he drew on to help him win his fights. CJ watched as they loaded up his father's body. He was underneath a white sheet and the beautiful woman he hadn't been formally introduced to was at his father's side, giving directions to the paramedics. CJ sat there for a long while. Even after every man in attendance had cleared the place, CJ couldn't bring himself to leave. He could feel his father there, and he knew once he walked out, their connection would be severed. Estes didn't rush him. He just gave him space to feel whatever emotion he had assigned as appropriate. CJ often got emotions mixed up in his head. He was so full of so many things that had gone unresolved that when things happened to him, it was often a mystery as to how he would respond. It took three hours for CJ to pull himself up. He's dead, isn't he? CJ didn't know why he was asking the question he already knew the answer to. Of course, Carter was dead. CJ had felt the coldness of his skin. It was a cold that a living, breathing thing could not ever be. CJ was glad that Carter had come back into his life. CJ had been the one to hold him until he had transitioned on, but he hated the way they had left things. His last conversation with his father had been a bad one. An argument where he had said things he didn't mean. He never thought it would be the last words they would exchange. And CJ wished he had handled things differently. They're saying a heart attack, Estes confirmed. CJ's fists were at the side of his head. As he clenched his eyes shut at the revelation. Time was always something he had more of. It was what he was banking on when it came to his parents. All he had to do was wait for time to pass. And God would put him and his parents in a place where they could reunite. Mia Moore would be released from prison in due time, and his father would return home. All he had to do was be patient. That was what he told himself on nights when he missed them so badly that he couldn't sleep. Now nothing would ever repair their fractured family, because Carter was gone. Esther sat next to him, knowing there wasn't anything he could say to ease CJ's torment. He remembered exactly how it felt to lose someone so dear. There weren't words to describe the anguish. He could see CJ's lips quivering as the boy tried his hardest to stifle the tears. He was trying to be strong, trying to maintain the hard front that he usually put on in front of Estes, but holding it inside was damaging. This type of suffering would rot a man's soul away. Estes knew because he had allowed himself to decay slowly over the years after the death of his beloved son, Sammy. It was no way to live, especially for a young boy. CJ hadn't even begun to explore the depths of his heart. It couldn't go without repair at this early age. It would stop him from ever adequately loving anyone again. The only people he had extended his heart to were his parents, his close family, and Estes. But CJ had yet to know the tender tug of a woman's devotion. He had yet to feel the butterflies and nervousness that loving a beautiful woman could bring. If CJ stifled his loss now and bottled it inside, it would damage him. He wouldn't ever allow himself to open his heart again in fear of feeling this same devastating blow. 
Estes was a man with an ice block around his heart. He has an ice block where his heart used to be. He literally, a block is a box, so he literally has an ice, oh my god. But he forced himself to pull CJ into an embrace. The empathy he felt for CJ made Estes uncomfortable, but he didn't let go because he knew that it was what CJ needed. You're not alone, kid, Estes said. I got you. Let it out. You have to let some of that water out or you'll drown in it. It'll be okay. His hug was firm, sturdy, supportive, and strong enough to hold up the breaking CJ. CJ sobbed, releasing tears of detriment. He had felt so alone, so abandoned, but he always knew that one day his father would come back. Carter was godly to CJ. He could beat anything and anyone and would in order to return to his family. Death was the one thing that Carter couldn't come back from. It was permanent, and as CJ cried, he felt the magnitude of it all. Death was a part of life. It was a passage that everyone must take eventually. The prematurity of his father being taken away made him feel like he was dreaming. How would he become a man with no father? Who would teach him about sex? Who would show him how to change a tire? Who would dissolve his worry when he finally became a father himself? His example of manhood was on a slab in the morgue, and Estes was telling him it would be okay. Nothing would ever be okay. Nothing would ever feel complete, because the man from whom he came from hadn't finished his job of molding CJ before God stripped him of the privilege. He pulled back, clearing his throat as he swiped a hand over his face. Let's go, Estes said. Go where, CJ asked. Home, Estes replied. CJ looked around, knowing there wasn't any point in staying there. Refusing to leave wouldn't bring his father back. If he never saw the place again, it would be fine with him. I can't fight here anymore, but I still have to fight, CJ said. He held up his fists in front of his face as he shook them with conviction. Fighting is the only thing I've got. Nigga, please. He shook them with conviction. Like, seriously, picture that. Okay, so, as I say these things, hold your, unless you're driving, please don't if you're driving, but hold your fist up in front of your face and say, I can't fight here anymore, but I still have to fight, and then shake your fist and look at them with conviction. Fighting is the only thing I've got, and then remember, the nigga's 12. Estes nodded in understanding. It's fine. We'll put you in a real ring with real fighters. No more street stuff. It'll be good to give you something serious to focus on. Estes stood and extended his hand to CJ, then helped pull him from the ground. As they walked out, Estes threw an arm around CJ's shoulder and gave him a quick pat of reassurance. Their relationship was symbiotic. CJ needed Estes, especially now that Carter was gone, but Estes was in dire need of CJ as well. A fatherless child and a childless father. They filled a void in each other's lives, and they would for years to come. Can we just get back to, like, little Mo? Can we get back to him and Joey? Like, that was a, that was probably the best story y'all had popping off in this uh, book. And y'all... Chapter 19. I felt every pain, until I felt nothing, and then I saw the reaction to the way I left this earth. It's fucked up the way death creeps up on you. In the most unexpected way, I was ripped from everything and everyone I held dear. 
in front of my son, in the arms of my son, I was sucked back into the womb of my creator. The same way that I was waiting to cradle my son as he was pushed out of the womb of the creator. The parallel between life and death, so apparent as my son ushered me into the light. It's hard, knowing that I'm leaving him behind when I haven't fully taught him how to survive in it. Seeing him cry, seeing his soul shake, but not being able to do anything except walk beside him along his journey. I hope he feels me there, because I'll never leave him. It's a bruise to a man's ego to see his son cry on the shoulder of another man. Is it, though? That's some future hotep shit. I should have been there. If I could have, I would have been there. And now he'll never know why I was away for so long. Time didn't permit me to favor of making up for my disappearance. There are certain things that a boy never heals from, and I hope my death isn't the thing to manifest trouble in CJ's life. The way I miss him, the way I miss his mother, is immeasurable. I'm comforted by the fact that she knew. Mia Moore knew exactly how deep my love for her flowed. She was the key to parts of myself that were inaccessible before her. I hope that she's able to remind CJ of how much I cared and how hard I tried to be a man he will want to become one day. I didn't have that. I didn't know that feeling of admiration for a man greater than myself. Even without ever having one conversation with Carter Diamond, I somehow grew up to be just like him. I tried to make my mark on the world, tried to provide for my family without doing much harm, you know, as a drug dealer. But in some cases, harm was necessary. I was a man who lived a flawed life for the perfect reasons. For them. If only I had the chance to do it all over again. I would hustle less and love them more. Because at the end of it all, the things were left behind. The money, the cars, the houses, even the power all stayed on earth. There were possessions to be bought, sold, and traded. What God allowed me to take with me, what crossed over from the realm of the living, was love. The memories of those I cherish are like pieces of treasure in a heart-shaped chest, and I now know my purpose in life was to fill that chest up, to fill my heart up. I want that for my son. I want that for my wife. I hope I get to witness that as I look down on them from above, because I'll be watching, closely. I'll never be far. I know they'll mourn my passing. I know my absence will make me more angry with God, but I'll leave her heart up to him, because I know only he can change it. He knows how much I need her, here with me, in this beautiful oasis, so I'm confident that he will repair his relationship with her. I have no doubt about that. How the fuck you get to heaven? Huh? How did you get there? Y'all niggas ain't supposed to be there. Like, are you at the reserve table with your family? Like, how are you in heaven? Mia Moore lacks the understanding that she'll see me again. That much is guaranteed. Time doesn't exist up here. So, when we're reunited, it'll feel like a separation never existed. But those decades that Mia Moore and CJ have yet to live will feel long to them. Days will be hard. Loneliness will settle in and tears will fill endless nights. I pray that the bad days don't last long for them because I'm still right here. Not in the flesh, but in spirit. And I always will be. Can I ask y'all this real quick? Who came up with the uh, idea or the, the mentality that heaven was up and hell was down? Like if you went up far enough, you'd get to heaven. Or if you went down far enough, you'd get to hell. 
Who came up with directions? Do you make a left at Albuquerque? Like, who said that first? Down in hell where the devil prevails, or prevails, you know. Up in heaven. Who came up with it? I'm not discounting the idea of heaven and hell. I don't know, but I don't think God put a roadmap in the Bible. And if you could go up far enough to get it, you know what I know? White people would have figured out a way to get there by now just so they could see it and try and incorporate it into their own like corporation or something. That's all. Chapter 20. Death always seemed to be the thing to bring families back together. Weddings and funerals, Breeze thought. It was the only time black families got together, and as Breeze stood over her brother's body, she wished like hell that it had been a wedding that had brought her back to town instead. Carter looked so peaceful that she would have thought he was simply sleeping if she didn't know better. She shook her head in disgrace. None of this made any sense. You are goddamn right, Breeze. Carter was a man who had survived everything. War with Haitians that never went anywhere. Conflict with Mexican cartels that never came back to haunt them. Threats from Saudi princes. I guess now we'll never know what happened in Bermuda. Oh no. He had come out of all those circumstances unscathed. Or so they thought. The weight of all those things had cost him. No one knew how heavy the crown would be except the king. Being the one to make life and death decisions, being everyone's protector, being the oldest child is what caused his heart to fail him. He simply carried too much, and Breeze knew that the fracturing of their family had been the thing to break him. Carter had come into her life so late that now she wondered what life would have been like if she had known him when she were a little girl. She felt like she had been robbed. He was the brother she loved the most, for real? Okay. But had spent the least amount of time with. Breeze had the privilege to walk around Miami without worry because of Carter's influence, because of Monroe's influence, and because of Mecca's as well. All three of them were in the grave now. Prematurely, she was stripped of her entire family. She was the last of the Diamond children, and the loneliness she felt being in the world without her siblings made silent tears escape her. It didn't seem real. A heart attack, she thought dismally. Not even a bullet to the chest could kill him, but a heart attack did. She shook her head in utter belief. Breeze thought of Zaire and was grateful for his memory loss. For the first time, it didn't seem like such a bad thing. Losing Carter would have broken Zaire, and Breeze would have never been able to put the pieces back together the same. Carter's impact on everyone around him was so magnified, so intense, that his absence would change the fabric of their lives. His death wasn't one that would be forgotten. Time simply cannot heal this wound. Breeze had tried to move on from Miami. She desperately wanted to leave it all behind. The only connection she hadn't severed was the phone call she accepted from Mo. But Carter's death had brought her running home. Carter Diamond had left a strong legacy for his children. While being his seed was a gift, it was also a curse, and her early invitation to the grave seemed to be one of them. She had attended one too many funerals in her lifetime, and as she looked back to her daughter, who was being occupied by one of the funeral home workers, she promised herself she wouldn't be next. She turned to the funeral director. Nothing but the best for him. He was one of the good ones, she said. The fuck does that mean? He was one of the good ones. Like, are you talking about racially? 
Are you talking about in your family? Are you talking about men in general? Like, what exactly does that mean? Why would you say that to a random person? He was one of the good ones. What does that mean, Kobe Bryant? Of course, the man replied as he rolled the white sheet over Carter's face. Breeze rushed out the room and scooped up her daughter before racing outside. She gulped in the fresh air as soon as she exited, trying to erase the stench of death from her nostrils. She knew that she would have to be the one to tell Mia more, and that was something she was not looking forward to. Over the years, they had developed a bond that was unbreakable, but Breeze was at a point in her life where she wanted to keep Mia more at a distance. It wasn't personal. She wanted to keep the entire city in Miami and the past that came with it at bay. Mia Moore played Grim Reaper for so long that death was attached to her. It was as natural as water or air for Mia Moore, and Breeze couldn't allow that type of energy to infect her life. Not anymore. Not since motherhood. Breeze told herself that this would be the last time she allowed herself to come back home. After she buried Carter, no one would see or hear from her again. If Zaire could erase his memories and start anew, she could too. But first, she had to make it through the funeral of Carter Jones. Mia Moore's chest was weighed down by chains. It was heavy, and the burden of the loss pulled at her, enticing her to crumble. She felt her legs shaking, withering in the heart of her despair with every step she struggled to take. Nothing had ever hurt this bad. She wondered if others could see her pain. It felt like an ugly scar, one that caused gawkers to ridicule. It had to be the reason why all these inmates were staring at her as she made her way towards the exit. They could see her. They could see it. The devastation. The heartbreak. She wore it like an accessory. She was escorted by two guards, one on each arm as they walked her towards the light of the free world. Her shuffled steps made her feel as if she would fall as the chains at her feet tripped her up along the way. And although she had worn the cuffs on her hands before, today they seemed to bite into her skin extra tightly. Mia Moore felt everything. On this cloudy, rainy, gloom-filled day, her emotions were magnified. She knew the sun wouldn't shine for the occasion. She was surprised it had risen at all. Not even the flowers would bloom on such a tragic day. It had taken God seven days and seven nights to create the beauty of the earth, and it had only taken one thing to destroy it all for her. She would never see awe in anything of this world. With the death of one man, everything stopped. Life, significance, love, joy, purpose. It all ceased to exist. Carter Jones, firstborn son of Carter Diamond, was gone. How did this happen, she thought. She was desperately hoping she had been misinformed. Perhaps it was Zaire who died, or CJ, or Moe, or Breeze, or hell, just any fucking body other than Carter Jones. What? You'd rather your son die than your husband? Oh, no. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. Oh, she could feel the ache in her bones. It settled in deeply, penetrating her like the winter winds on a freezing day, and all she could do was feel it. Mia Moore felt no shame that she was wishing death on all her loved ones because any one of their deaths would be easier to deal with than his, including your son, though. He had been the man that thought her cold heart. He was life for Mia Moore, and although Mia Moore knew there was a God, the only person she had ever worshipped was Carter. Mia Moore had done so many bad things in her lifetime, and she had waited for karma to circle back to fill her with regret. The prison sentence wasn't severe enough. To a woman like Mia Moore, it was simply a waiting game. But this, 
This death, this unexplainable, unfair, and unexpected loss was unfathomable. It was her karma. To love Carter and then to lose him was the most traumatic thing she had ever felt. Had there been someone to blame, to murder, to exact revenge upon, it would have made it easier. Every hustler has his day when the Grim Reaper sends a shooter at his door. If he had fallen victim to the game, Mia Moore could have understood. She would have been able to wrap her mind around the how of it all. His heart just stopped beating. It just stopped working, she thought. How does that happen? She had a million questions. The who, what, when, where, why, and hows of his death plagued her. But no one had the answers. It has simply been his time. Only it wasn't his time. We didn't get a lifetime together. I didn't get to see his beard turn gray or watch him raise our son. He was supposed to grow old. We were supposed to grow old together. Her thoughts were torture, and her uncharacteristic tears fell as effortlessly as the rain from the sky on this ugly day. Mia Moore couldn't even appreciate the free air as she stepped outside because without Carter, the entire world felt like prison. The only thing that would make her feel free is if God snatched the breath from her lungs and allowed her to make the journey with him into the afterlife. If she could, she would purchase that one-way ticket without hesitation. She would lay down her life for him. Never would she have taken these years behind bars if she had known he wouldn't be there waiting for her at the end of it all. Mia Moore lowered her body inside the unmarked transport car and leaned her head against the window. God, please, she thought. She didn't know what she was praying for. Death was the one thing that couldn't be undone. The way this had occurred felt like the cruelest joke. When the car pulled up to the cemetery, the pit in Mia Moore's stomach filled with bile. She was sick, physically and mentally. Her emotions were all over the place. Mia Moore saw the casket sitting high over the plot of dirt that would serve as the final resting place for her only love. She wanted to throw herself into the pit right along with them. The casket was pure gold and it shined. It was only fitting. Carter had gone through life as a king, and the beautiful custom box was made just for him. There were only a few people in attendance. Carter wouldn't have wanted to make a spectacle, and she couldn't help but wonder who had decided on the intimacy of the occasion. The details were supposed to be up to her. She knew him best. She was his queen, his wife. She should have been there for him to plan out his memorial and cry while picking out flowers and the words that will forever be etched on his headstone. Mia Moore passed Breeze, who stood holding the hand of a beauty of a little girl, tears standing both of their cheeks. Mia Moore was almost sure that the little girl was only crying because of the uncontrollable sobs that left Breeze's lips. Another woman was present, someone Mia Moore didn't recognize. A stunning beauty who bore no tears but whose solemn expression told Mia Moore that she was saddened, but not grief-stricken from losing Carter. It was like the woman was managing her pain, controlling how much she let show, and Mia Moore wondered how anyone could have such incredible restraint. She needed some of that restraint in this moment, because with every step she took, sorrow added one more brick to her back. It wouldn't be long before she was folded over, unable to carry it all. Her breakdown was inevitable. Her feet sank into the wet grass with every dreadful step, and she wished God would just open the ground and swallow her whole. I just want to go with him, she thought. Yeah, because you know, your son doesn't need anybody other than Esther's like, what? Son? And you know, neither her nor Carter were really concerned about their son at all since their son's birth. 
Like, everything that they did was, I'm going to get back to Carter. I'm going to get back to Mia Moore. I'm going to get Mia Moore out. I'm going to get revenge on Mia Moore. I'm going to get revenge on Carter. Nobody ever really thought about their kid. She stood directly in front of the casket and lifted her shackled hands to touch the top. She recoiled, surprised how cold the metal was. She shook her head. I need to see his face, she whispered. Open it. She turned to the groundskeeper that stood off to the side at a respectable distance. He was like a vulture, just waiting for the family to leave so he could throw Carter in this ominous hole. I'm sorry, it's policy. Open the casket. Mia Moore's voice was full of venom, and suddenly tension was an attendee. Inmate, I'm not leaving here without seeing his face. I'm his wife. I deserve to see him. I just want to see him. Mia Moore was distraught. She was crying so hard that her face had taken on a shade of red as distress plagued her. The woman whose face Mia Moore was still trying to place stepped up and whispered something to the groundskeeper. Seconds later, the casket was being opened. There he rested, seeing his dark face, eyes permanently closed, hands folded on top of himself in a signature suit, Tom Ford, if she had to guess. It was this image that haunted her. To see the absence of life, his shell, lying before her, knowing his spirit was somewhere in the clouds, dug a hole in her so deeply that Mia Moore's shoulders jerked with pain. Hey, handsome, she whispered as she touched his face, caressing with the back of her hand as she bent to place a kiss on his lips. I love you. My God, I love you so much. How are you leaving me right now? How could you do this? I'm so sorry I wasn't there, she wept. Mia Moore had always hoped they would die together old in her home, with a lifetime of memories behind them. They were just getting started. In fact, amidst the wars and the treachery, they hadn't even truly begun. She blamed herself for not being by his side, but only because she needed someone to assign blame to. She knew her presence probably would have made no difference, but her absence placed a guilt on her that she couldn't shake. She had incomprehensible loss to deal with. The burden of her imprisonment, the inability to be there for her son, Mia Moore knew Carter enough to know that it was what had killed him. He had been disconnected from his lifelines and his heart couldn't function without them. Mia Moore wasn't even supposed to be touching Carter, but not even the guards were cold enough to stop her. It felt like they were witnessing a private moment. Everyone in attendance was a voyeur to her grief. Her world was ending as she realized her doom would be the punishment of walking through life without a world that included him. His love was what sustained her, and without the sustenance of him... Mia Moore was slowly rot. She may be physically present, but her soul was right there in that casket with Carter. No one would ever be able to touch her heart the way he had. Carter was her soul food, and without him, she would starve. He was the only one who made her believe she was worthy of love, that she was worthy of a man who wanted to do more than simply possess her. Carter had shown her forgiveness when he owed her none, and she had yet to repay him for that kindness. With him six feet under... Now she never would. The opportunity to enjoy this gift of a man had passed her by. She had wasted it. Wasted her life, their life, behind bars. I should have just run away with them. We could have taken CJ and lived away from the madness, away from the feds. At least we would have been together, Mia Moore thought. She was so full of what-ifs that she was choking on them. Mia Moore could feel the torturous vacuum of nothingness begin to consume her as she cried over her man. He was hers. She was his. They belonged to each other. How dare God take him so soon?
Carter's death had birthed an anger with her creator that she had never felt before. She had never been close to God because she did the devil's work and Carter's death only widened the gap. Mia Moore was vulnerable, exposing her heartbreak for the few that were in attendance. And it was a scene to see. Everyone, even the guards, felt her loss. She noticed the droplets of rain falling onto his body and quickly realized that it was her tears standing him. The rain was picking up and Mia Moore didn't want him to get wet. She reluctantly let go. Even a lifetime would not have been enough. I'll see you when I get there, my king, she whispered. She had already made it up in her mind that she would expedite the process. Mia Moore couldn't breathe, didn't want to breathe. The privilege of inhaling felt selfish if Carter could not. I want y'all to feel the side eye that I'm giving. Because once again, as I said earlier, Mia Moore has only existed in this series to be a conduit for Carter. For him to, she was his reason. She was his object. And now that he's gone, if they take her out, I'm going to be furious. This is literally more disrespect to black women in this book written by black people. Breeze had found her independence from uh, Zaire for reasons that were completely valid to her. Until she saw him again and all of a sudden she felt guilty and wanted to be his wife again. And Mia Moore, without Carter, completely forgets that she still has a son to watch out for, to take care of. And she's willing to put everything else aside and see everyone else die for Carter to come back. Are you serious? That, that, that just... As she leaned over to kiss his lips, she wished she could just share the air with him. Let him borrow a little of hers, but life didn't work that way. Everyone was living on borrowed time, and Carter's had sadly expired. It's not fair. God, please. But there was no point in begging. Hers would be the last prayers to be answered if ever there were a hierarchy. Her sins were just that great. Mia. Mia more loved Breeze, but she wanted to dead her where she stood for interrupting her goodbye. She turned her head, eyes ablaze, but her misplaced anger was quickly doused with the image of her son. Ma? CJ stood, the spitting image of his father, and Mia Moore felt the tug of her heart. This was what Carter had left her with. CJ was a kryptonite, though, and make sure she wasn't destroyed in Carter's absence. Not much time had passed. In fact, CJ was coming up on his 13th birthday. But it had felt like an eternity, and somehow... She could see that he had changed. He was flanked by two men, both of Dominican descent, clearly there for CJ's protection, and she looked at Breeze stunned. She went to her son, who stiffened slightly as she embraced him, but her mother's love, no matter how distant, is undeniable. He melted eventually at her touch. You're so big. I can't believe I missed so much, Mia Moore whispered, completely distraught. It was like the time she missed didn't hit her until she saw his face. He had completely transformed into a young man she didn't recognize. I'm so sorry, Mia Moore whispered. As soon as I can, I'm going to come for you. That's my word. I'm okay, Ma, CJ said with a maturity that Mia Moore didn't like. It burned her that she was missing these important years with him. She would have no control over the type of man that he would become, and the thought both saddened and scared her. 
Without Carter, who would shape him? Who would he be? He was growing at a rapid rate, and she felt like less than a mother for not being around when he needed her. She had banked on Carter being there to fill in for her absence, but with him gone, the guilt aided her. He lowered his tone. I'm with Estes. Recognition flickered in her eyes as worry filled me and more. She didn't entirely trust Estes with her son. I killed his daughter, an eye for an eye. Leave here with your auntie Breeze. Listen to me, CJ. You cannot trust Estes. Do you hear me? Don't trust him, Miamore warned. She could already see his indifference, and the guards were stepping up, intruding on her space and her time with her seed. It was important that he listened to her. It was imperative. His life could depend on it. Miamore wrapped her arms around her child. I love you. Don't ever forget that. You're the son of Carter Jones. You best not ever forget that. I love you so much. The guards grabbed her by the elbow. It's time. Don't touch me while I'm talking to my son. She snatched her arm away from their grasp. Before it could become a scene, Breeze stepped up. I've got him, Miamore. Breeze reassured. Miamore hung her head in defeat as tears fell with the rain. Take care of him, Breeze. Please. Make sure my baby's okay. Look at him. He's hardened. He's... A son of the cartel. The mystery woman stepped up. And as if she were the one cutting the guards' checks, they backed up, giving her space. I'm Inari. I'm a friend of Carter's. Inari noticed the looks of jealousy and wrath that crossed Mia Moore's face, and she chuckled. Only a friend, she reassured. I've heard about that temper of yours. You have nothing to worry about. I don't want any part of the illogical craziness that Carter loves so much. Carter ensured your freedom before he passed. Reuniting with you and his son has ordered his steps for the past year. I'm sorry he won't be here to see all his hard work pay off, but he took care of everything. I need you to stay strong in there. Erase those thoughts I see swarming in your head. Think of your son and stay low. I'm going to be coming for you, and when I do, I need you to be ready. Anari stepped off, and before Mia Moore could ask any questions, the guards were escorting her away. Wait, please, wait! When she turned back, she saw her son standing in front of Carter's casket, saying the same goodbye she had just muttered. She went to him, walking up from behind, and placed her cuffed hands around her son's body. He didn't cry the way she had. He just stood there, quietly, solemnly. The groundskeeper stepped up. We have to close it now. The rain. Mia Moore nodded and watched. Pieces of her heart broke off as they lowered the lid inch by inch. Wait, she said. She reached inside and removed his Rolex, then handed it to CJ. I love you, were the last words she said before the guards insisted that she leave. She was grateful for their tolerance on this day, but she had a feeling that some of it had to do with the mystery woman who was now being driven away in the blacked-out Bentley. Mia Moore didn't look back because it would only make her want to stay with her family, stay with him, and none of it was possible. So instead, she retreated, nursing a wounded soul as she headed back to her imprisonment. An era had ended, and much like the conclusion of all good things, she wanted to fight it. Suddenly, she regretted every single insignificant thing that ever kept her and Carter apart. None of it had been worth it, but in the end, she was glad that he knew how much she loved him. Mia Moore was sacrificed at all for Carter Jones, and he knew that because she had shown him. Their tumultuous love had endured the darkest valleys and reached the highest peaks. 
It was the most beautiful thing she had ever experienced, and she was grateful to know truth and love without conditions through her connection with him. If they all were God's children, there wasn't a doubt in her mind that Carter was his favorite. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got the hiccups. Oh, shit. Because the energy he contributed to her life was almost mystical. As if God had given her a small token of love to show her that he was indeed real. Not many people experience love like that. And as she stared out her window and looked up into the sky, she felt Carter with her. He would always be with her because he had been inside her. Yeah, he had. He had rooted himself there, giving her a baby, planting his DNA. Carter had fertilized her soul so good the remnants of him would bloom every season when it rained most. This was one of those times. The pain was present, but somewhere deep inside she felt the pulse of his strength, telling her to keep going. He's here. He will always be here, she thought, and she placed a hand to her heart. She took a long, deep breath, and when she exhaled, her tears ceased. Her loss was great. They had written a story so great that without it, the world of the cartel would have no narrative. They had fought hard and loved harder. She wouldn't have minded doing it for just a bit longer. She remembered meeting him in that casino all those years ago. She remembered hesitating at the funeral when she was supposed to kill him. When something inside her told her she couldn't. She remembered the way he had entered her on that beach under the moonlight. She smirked as she thought of the many showers she had taken to get the sand out of all her creases. She thought of disappearing from his life, then reappearing on his doorstep, begging him to forgive her as rain poured over them. He had stepped out into that rain with her, taking her back because her love was faded. Neither of them had ever been able to resist. The birth of their son traveling across oceans to bring her man back from Saudi Arabia, building up Vegas together as the first black family to have a majority share in the casino, and being crazy enough over him to put a girl in the dirt for trying to take her place. All of it, the good, the bad, the hood, the ugly, the crazy, she would do it again in a heartbeat because it had been a hell of a ride. Carter had made every moment worth it. Well, I mean, you could have done without putting the girl in the dirt. You could have. Like, seriously, that's how all, you, you know what? Mia Mora yearned for him every day for the rest of her years. That's just what a real man had the power to do to a woman. Y'all know these long sides, or these long pauses are for side eyes, right? Like, that's where I'm side eyeing the screen, the book, the microphone, the world. She had experienced one of life's gifts. He had blessed her, and Mia Mora would never forget it. They were inseparable. Even the grave couldn't part them, and she promised herself that every day, with every breath, she would live for them both. Epilogue, ten years later. CJ's heart pounded, wait, so ten years later, that makes him 23 now. Okay, yeah. Like I said before, they were clearly writing this book for CJ. And for him to take over as something, a boxer, I guess, I don't fucking know. CJ's heart pounded as he stood at the gravesite, staring at his father's headstone. He felt so many emotions pulsing through him, and he clenched his fists at his sides, used to working out his conflicts through his hands, through boxing. This feeling was one that fighting couldn't solve. You weren't there for me, man, CJ whispered as he swiped his hand over his full beard and sniffed away the mist in his eyes. CJ knew his father was a great man, 
but so many years have passed without him that he had grown resentful. You just left me. CJ had been too young to understand Carter's absence in his life after me and Moore had gone to prison, and years without explanation had put a deep seat of hurt inside him. At 22 years old, he was a man with unresolved anger. He chose to work it out inside the ring. Estes had raised him, almost bred him like a prize-winning horse. He had spent most of his life in the Dominican Republic, making a name for himself with a skill, fighting all the demons that lived inside his head from his childhood. He had worked hard to make his exterior as hard as possible. His defined abs, his broad chest, and hard biceps were all masks that hid his interior. CJ was fucked up, unable to trust, unable to love, and he made no apologies for it. Everything he had lived through had made him this way. He looked at the Rolex watch he wore on his wrist. It was the only thing besides his name that he had of his father. It was time to go. He couldn't spend too much time wallowing over the past. He had to make it to his training session or Estes would kill him. He was preparing for the biggest fight of his career, right here in Miami. He had moved back to train with a world-class team, but he knew when he stepped foot in the city that his family's past would come back to haunt him. He could feel the legacy of his family name in the air. Like slaves haunted plantations, the Diamond family seemed to make Miami their own personal heaven. Even a decade later, the name still rang bells all over the city. He told himself that he would stay focused amidst the media storm, but he had no idea how strong the legacy of his father really was. Miami was a city that could turn even the best of men bad, and he prayed that the decision to come back wouldn't lead to his downfall. Only time will tell. So, we just never found out anything more about Mo and Joey at all. Hopefully in the epilogue. Mia Moore sat braiding the hair of her cellmate, but in her mind, she was on a sandy beach with Carter Jones. It had been 10 years, and time had done nothing to remedy her heart. Hadn't she? So she's been in jail now for what, 13 years? 13? Okay. And she was doing 15, right? You good, Mia? Mia Moore nodded and looked down at Ash. Yeah, just thinking, she replied. You go off in your head a lot, Ash said. Better be careful in here. One of these bitches in here is just waiting to catch you slipping. What are you going to do when I'm gone? Ash thought. They know better, Mia Moore said. And I taught you everything you know. You came in here looking like a meal to some of these women. Now you know how to protect yourself, Mia Moore said. Ash had been her cellmate for the past four years. When the girl had first arrived, she was young and defenseless. At 18 years old, she was way too young to be in prison. After she had gotten in a fight with the inmate... Ash had spent two weeks in an infirmary with cracked ribs and a punctured lung. When she returned, Mia Moore taught her how to keep the wolves at bay. She taught her everything she knew and turned her into a monster. Ash was fearless with Mia Moore at her side and had caught two bodies since being inside. Then what What you mean when she gone? Unless you get in death row. Shit. <laughs> the guards didn't know who was responsible for the hits, but the inmates knew. And once they recognized Ash and Mia Moore's guard dog, they never tested her again. You're getting out of here. I'm proud of you. I'm not telling you not to get your hands dirty because you're a grown woman. You're going to do what you want to do. But be smart. Move smart out there. I want to see you back in here with me, Mia Moore said. You only got a year before you come home, Ash said. I'm going to set up everything for you when you get out. Tell me what you have to do, Mia Moore said. I got it, Ash assured. Tell me anyway, Mia Moore insisted. You want me to contact Aries and get your money? 
Get a place and then find your son, Ash said, reciting the instructions in the exact order that Miyamura taught her. He'll have enemies that he knows nothing about. Don't let them touch my son. He doesn't need to know I sent you. In fact, being close to me will make it harder to be close to him. So don't even mention me. Oh, so Ash is going to go meet CJ and they're going to fall in love. Because they're about the same age. Yeah, exactly the same age. Got in there when she was 18, four years later, 22. Just become acquainted. Get close to him and keep the snakes out of his grasp, Mia Moore instructed. Mia Moore knew that her son was back in Miami and there was no way she was leaving anything to chance. She had made too many enemies to not worry. I got him, I promise, Ash said. Ash had become like a daughter to Mia Moore and although she was sending her back into the world with an agenda, she truly did care about her well-being. And take care of yourself, Ash. Miami is treacherous. Be careful, Mia Moore added. I will, Ash assured her. Now you can go back to your daydreams, Ash said with a chuckle. Mia Moore laughed, but as she continued to braid, she slipped back into the depths of her mind where Carter still lived. Nigga, I want my fucking money when I burn your ass, Mo said as he revved up the engine to the stolen convertible Porsche 911 he drove. He looked over at Joey, his best friend, who sat confidently behind the wheel of a 1969 Camaro. Bruh, get the fuck out of here. You and that foreign shit. I like that homegrown. Joey cracked as a beautiful ebony-colored girl seated in his pasture seat giggled at the witty response. Mo looked at the exotic woman next to him with her manufactured looks and then stuck up his middle finger. Just have my bread, my G. Mo gloated. On three. One, he counted. Two, Joey added. Three, the girl shouted as both men took off. They flew through the streets of Miami, lawless and without worry, as the horsepower under their hoods made it neck and neck. They were playing a dangerous game, pushing 140 miles per hour down the city street, weaving in and out of regular traffic. Moe's long hair that he wore wild and free like a lion's mane blew in the wind as he pressed the beautiful machine to the limit. His face fell in defeat as Joey took the victory, and the sound of his tires screeched to a stop as he did a full 360-degree turn tore through the air as he hopped from the car. Give him my money, my nigga, Joey gloated, his boyish charm oozing out as he gave a mischievous smirk. Mo went into his glove box and sourly pulled out three thick rubber-banded knots of green bills before tossing them out the window. Yeah, yeah, you got lucky, Mo stated. You know how you gotta give me a chance to win that back. He had just lost 20 grand in seconds, but it was worth the high of the race. Your ass will gamble on two ants on the sidewalk, my G. Joey cracked as he climbed back into his car. Mo chuckled, but didn't respond because he knew it was true. He lived a high-stakes lifestyle at all times. Everything was a gamble. Yo, you still got the hookup on that fight in a few months? You putting bread on that, Joey asked. Mo nodded. Absolutely. Mo hadn't seen CJ in 13 years, but as soon as he saw the billboards around the city, he recognized him. The fight was a big deal, and Mo would be ringside. They had a lot of catching up to do. Family was scarce in Mo's world these days, and he couldn't wait to surprise CJ at the fight. Life had taken them down two different paths. Mo was getting his in the dirt, and Miami was his playground. Running the streets was as natural to him as the water to fish, and he took to the underworld as soon as they released him from lockup. His name rang strong and true on these streets, and Mo was getting a lot of money, just the diamond men before him had done. He had no idea where CJ had been all these years, but he was about to welcome him back home. 
He hoped that CJ wanted in, because together, they could take over and claim the throne that was rightfully theirs. Mo revved up the engine and looked up at the billboard of his cousin's face before speeding off. A new era was about to bring heat to the Miami streets, and Mo was going to prove to the entire city that his family hadn't fallen off. A smirk spread across his lips because he knew what was to come, and he couldn't wait to take his pieces of pie. He gripped the steering wheel tightly with one hand and rested his other on the pretty girl's thigh beside him as he thought, Niggas thought we were done. We're just getting started. Diamonds are forever. God damn it. I mean, I know that there's more books, but yet I still feel very put out that there's more books. So now it's going to start all over again. Ash is going to meet CJ. They're going to fall in love. Blah, blah, blah. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify. I, I really should see more reviews. If y'all are listening to this on Spotify, it shouldn't take that. It, it's not difficult. I promise you. Um... Lee review on Podchaser. Copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts and copy and paste that into Good Pods. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. There's a tip jar. Thank y'all so much for listening. Greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. You know what? Nope, fuck that. I got more to say. They never actually introduced this Illuminati. They didn't even explain why the book was called Illuminati. They didn't have a round table of boss at any point in this book. They just stated it at one point, but they never actually had them get with anybody who was going to change anything. This book was quite simply because they were like, you know, but we're going to kill off everything moving. So does that mean me and more still going to be around the next book? I'm hoping so. You know, I, I guess we'll see. I have to. Shit across a fucking bear but like i didn't like this book y'all know that it's not a secret i didn't like this book um i thought they could have done a lot more with mo and joey than just having them suddenly show up at the end after going through that shit in the prison where they grew up back to back like that would have been a great thing to read about actual growth of the kids but they never have growth they just skip ahead as they see fit and that's just annoying and also, that means that, so Aurora is now 13. I wonder if she's going to show up. <sighs> Anyhow, yeah, peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my